Hi, I'm Paula Joy and welcome to the IKEA podcast. In this episode, we discuss the future of food in the circular economy. Our discussion brings together experts in food, health and sustainability to uncover opportunities in the future of food. Ivana Frost, Head of Food at IKEA, Amanda Kane, Manager of Organics at the New South Wales Environment Protection Agency, Sarah Pennell, General Manager at Food Bank, and Head Chef at St Peter's, Josh Nyland, come together to look at the current food and waste situation and discuss some of the ways we can all help mitigate these issues. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am Paula Joy, and on behalf of IKEA, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to Vivid and this special conversation where we will be discussing the future of food in the circular economy. Now, as our world's population continues to grow, it's placing enormous pressure on our food resources, which heightens concern around food disposal and waste. So questions are mounting. How much longer can our food resources sustain the world's population? How will we avoid issues such as nutrient deficiency? Over the last century, the global population has quadrupled. In 1915, there were 1.8 billion people in the world. Today, according to the most recent studies by the UN, there are 7.3 billion people, and we may reach 9.7 billion by 2050. This growth, along with rising incomes in developing countries, which means we're eating more meat, we're, we're eating more protein, are driving up global food demand. Now, food demand is expected to increase anywhere between 59 to 98% by 2050, and this will shape our agricultural markets in a way that we have never experienced before. Please come in, welcome, take a seat. Farmers worldwide will need to increase crop production, either by increasing the amount of agricultural land to grow crops or by enhancing their productivity through new method, methods such as precision farming. So we need to explore how we can produce more food with less and in a more sustainable way. It's a fascinating and important conversation, one that we hope educates and inspires you today and helps you examine your own relationship with food. At the end, we will open up the discussion to you and we look forward to your contribution. Until then, if you want to join in the social conversation, please use the handle at IKEA underscore Australia or hashtag IKEA Australia. Now, before I introduce my beautiful panel, uh, I would like to just invite Ivana Frost, who's the country food manager for IKEA Australia, to talk through the seven goals that I, the IKEA food business has set to become people and planet positive by 2030. And I have a clicker, Ivana. Yes. That worked. Thank <laughs> awesome. Hi, everyone. Thank you for making time to join us today on this important topic. Um, and with in IKEA, um, both obviously we are a global organisation, we're located here in Australia as well, we have 10 stores um, feeding 13 million people per annum in this country alone. Uh, what we are looking at is um, uh, enabling and motivating people, more than a billion people by 2030 to live a more sustainable um, everyday life within the limits of the planet um, and the confines of what, how we live today. 
Um, so part of our seven food principles, as you can see up here, is promoting um, a more sustainable uh, way of living within your resources and also within our resources within our planet. Um, and an interesting word that we use within IKEA, if you see the first principle, which is largom, which means just right. So it's a balance between what we eat and also a balance within our ecosystem and our food resources that we look at when we look at our internal food um, requirements in our menu developments. We look at, we're looking at more plant-based um, varieties for our menus and developing um, more 20% increase of our plant-based foods that we have for our customers that come and eat with us in IKEA. Um, animal welfare, so fewer animals from better sources as well. We have a chicken program that we've launched end of last year, um, moving towards, we obviously source sustainably source seafood through our partnership with Aquaculture Stewardship Council and Marine Stewardship Council, which will maintain and continue. Uh, we also have an initiative, I'm going out of uh, number sequence here, um, <laughs> Our Food is Precious, which we uh, continue and will maintain our food waste initiatives that we have internally. Um, also, we look at food is pleasure, about eating together as a family and, and with friends, and it should be a community um, kind of uh, initiative as well. Uh, natural as well, with ingredients. Um, most of our food that we serve within IKEA is clean food, so meaning no banned additives. We have a list of banned additives that we do not use in our food, so numbers and so forth. So our meatballs are safe. Um, purely meat and a couple of spices as well, which I do enjoy, um, and a sustainable planet. So our seven food principles is about um, educating both us within IKEA and also outside of IKEA of how to live within our means, um, within our planet and our food resources. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, joining Ivana is a panel of inspirational experts in this field. And in the spirit of democracy, I'd like to invite each of them to introduce themselves, explain their role, and answer this question for me. One night left on Earth, because Mars has better restaurants, what, what is the meal that you will make? Uh, I'm going to start with Sarah Pinnell, who is the General Manager and Company Secretary for Food Bank Australia. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Paula. Um, hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. Uh, as Paula said, I work for Food Bank Australia. We're the largest scale uh, food relief organisation in Australia. So we uh, rescue food from the supply chain, right from the farm, right through to retailers and everyone in between, and then redirect that food to people in need. Um, and uh, I personally am responsible for the research portfolio at Food Bank, so looking at who the food secure pe insecure people are in Australia, um, why they are food insecure, and then also um, trialling and piloting programs that hopefully can extract more food from the supply chain and get it into people's tummies. Um, with regard to my last meal, well, I think I'd get Josh to cook it for me. Um, and I would like a very, 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 very slow cook salt and booker, if that's okay. Right. The swordfish, not pork. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. I don't know. Uh, well, that's a good introduction yeah, good to intro. you, Josh. Josh Nyland is a sustainable advocate, owner and head chef of St Peter and the Fish Butchery, maker of 
the greatest fish and chips in New South Wales. Please welcome Josh. Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Josh Nyland. I own St. Peter Restaurant and Fish Butchery on Oxford Street in Paddington. Uh, the restaurant we opened nearly three years ago now. And we, I always set out with the intent to open a restaurant where somebody could come in and have a really great piece of fish any night of the week. And uh, it kind of evolved from there. We opened the restaurant with three chefs, um, which was foolish, I suppose, uh, not knowing the, I suppose, instant popularity of people wanting to get a really good piece of fish. Uh, and we very quickly uh, started doing 90 to 100 hours a week, and we ran ourselves probably emotionally and physically into the ground and grew, <laughs> I suppose, a little bit defunct family in the kitchen, and it got quite tricky, like any kitchen does. And uh, in the new year, basically, I just said, look, we're going to double the staff. We just, we can't keep going with three chefs. So we went to six chefs and then all of a sudden winter hit. And then it was like, okay, <laughs> the, the harsh reality of owning your own business kind of set in. And the wage cost went to 55% and the food cost somehow came down to 22%. And I'm like, this is interesting. <laughs> How? how can premium fish come in at 22%? And so uh, all of these chefs that I'd employed have invested all this thinking and kind of got behind my beliefs in the fact that you can do anything to a fish. You can manipulate a fish and think like meat, like think, think that it is meat, apply butchery methods to fish. And all of a sudden we'd had, we made an eye chip using fish eyes. We made black pudding out of fish blood. Uh, we used the fish's sperm and made mortadella and, you know, a, a list of other things. But basically we started creating slightly more westernised, more desirable uh, recipes out of all these secondaries or bin food and we took a 45% yield from a, f a round fish and made that 91. So um, we... That's something that obviously we still practice now, but in that really harsh time of committing to more staff, we managed to come up with a list of new recipes uh, that we can build into our repertoire that we, we do today, which has generated, I suppose, the intrigue and popularity of both businesses. So. Yeah. Welcome, Josh. Thanks. Thank you. And your meal? <laughs> yes, meal. What I want to know what oh, you're I'm terrible. Eat. I'm probably part of this new hipster generation that says avocado on toast. Uh. <laughs> so I do my best thinking with a cup of tea and an avocado on toast. So <laughs> yeah. That's probably it. Simple's always <laughs> good. Welcome. Uh, Amanda Kane, Organics Manager, New South Wales Environment Protection Authority. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I uh, have the good fortune to look after the New South Wales Government's Food and Garden Waste Program. So that includes... Love Food, Hate Waste, which is all about education to help people avoid waste. But we also fund collection services for source-separated food or food to go into the garden bins. We fund infrastructure to process it into compost. And we also have a market development grant, which is all about um, showcasing the benefits of compost in soils and improving soil health. So it's across the whole range. It's a $100 million program. And we also support food donation as well because... In terms of avoidance, that's the best thing you can do. When it's really good enough not to be wasted, then it's brilliant if you can actually support the food relief sector that's going to give it to people in need. Mm. So. Welcome. Thank you. And Ivana, I think... Favourite meal? Oh, um, <laughs> spaghetti bolognese, because it's my absolute oh. favourite always, and you can't go wrong with a spag bot. With IKEA meatballs. <laughs> <Yeah>. Delicious. <laughs> 
Delicious. Ivana, I feel that you need to now introduce yourself because Ivana is the country food manager for IKEA Australia. And that sounds as though she's working in a farm. But I've come to know that when the way that IKEA name their roles, country manager means that she is actually the boss of all of Australia. Um, and it's such an interest, it is, in the food business and such an interesting role that you have. So I definitely want to know what you would eat as your last meal. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, starting off first, uh, IKEA food. Nobody kind of associates when you think about IKEA. We don't really think about IKEA food. So sometimes I'd introduce myself, oh, I'm the meatball lady at IKEA, because you can reference, everyone knows about our meatballs. Um, so it's an interesting role. And like Paula said, country food manager, I think when it was first, um, when I first joined IKEA and they were like, country food manager, I thought I'd be making scones and jam, like country women's weekly kind of yeah. menu. And um, the further I got into it, I realised, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot more to it. It isn't just the country kind of style of cooking. Um, so it's been an interesting journey. It's been a fabulous journey within IKEA Food. Um, as I mentioned, we have 13 million people that come into our 10 stores in Australia and eat with us every year, from families to uni students to um, single parents, everyone that comes into IKEA um, comes in and it has our meatballs. Obviously, you know our meatballs, our fabulous uh, hot dogs that we have, which we launched a new hot dog or a cleaner version um, with no banned additives, and it's um, a really good hot dog. I eat it too. Um, our veggie balls. So we really, when the thing that inspires me the most is we actually, what we're doing and the actions that we take from a food perspective, we actually do that every single day in our business. So sourcing the right food, uh, sourcing, having complete transparency within our supply chain. We're currently developing and growing and maintaining that structure within our business model. Um, and we also have we also have IKEA restaurants internally that nobody knows about. So all of our co-workers, we also have restaurants that feed our co-workers. So in the regular store, and probably Tempe or Rhodes might be a nearest store, we have three to 400 co-workers that also get fed every day. Um, so there's kind of two models if you look at IKEA food. So there's one for the customer and one for us internally. So four and a half thousand people um, that we feed within our IKEA food. Um, staff and also the 13 million customers that we have per annum. So it's a really uh, big role, um, but it's a lot of fun and it's very engaging and it's really great to meet the customers when you walk around the store and you find out, and I, tend, I do talk a lot and I do tend to ask our customers, why are you here today? Um, somebody could say, I'm here to buy a bag of tea lights or I met a dad in Perth that was there for three kids. Um, and he says, we come here every Tuesday night because I know that I can have an affordable meal for under $40. My kids can run crazy for two hours and get them really tired at the end of the day and they fall asleep. And also the parking's for free. So I thought... Ikea... It's a strong move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with IKEA Food, it's more than just selling meatballs or the dollar hot dog. There actually is purpose behind why we do what we do. Um, so that's the really great inspiring thing that I love in my day every day. Um, and also the 550 co-workers that we have within food around the country as well. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of testing. I do eat a lot um, of food. <laughs> and my favourite food, uh, probably moving towards the more plant-based, is vegetarian nachos. Like, I could just eat them every day. 
Um, so hopefully, who knows, maybe the next 12 months we might see some. We do actually have a chili con carne um, with the corn chip on the menu, but um, who knows, we'll see what we develop in the future as well. Oh, well, welcome. Thank you. I'm hungry already, so saddle up because we've got an, another hour to talk about food. Uh, and why don't we kick off uh, our discussion? And uh, Sarah, maybe I'll start with you. Why do we need to start taking a more sustainable and circular approach to food? And why should we care? Oh, okay. Why should we do it? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why we should do it. Um, both environmental, uh, economical, and social. Mm -hmm. um, why we should care, because we all need to care about food. Um, it's essential to all of us. Um, and the ability to be able to feed ourselves and everybody in our community is, you know, vital, obviously. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's worth noting that currently, um, we do produce enough food to be able to feed ourselves both here within Australia. In fact, in Australia, we produce an excess of food um, to our own needs, which is why we export. Um, but globally, we produce enough food for everybody. The issue is um, getting the food to where it's needed. And we have a situation where um, a lot of people waste a lot of food, um, and there is a lot of waste in the production process. And then, of course, there's a lot of people that are going without. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a stat worth citing is the fact that the, uh, excluding everyone in this room, I'm sure, but on average, the food that uh, uh, an individual Australian wastes every day pr would provide enough calories to feed a, a complete other person for that day. So. Mm. Um, if we were not wasting the food, we would be able to feed everybody. Mm. But in spite of that, here in Australia, we have four million people every year who are food insecure at some point. And that means they you know, are stressed about where their food is going to come from, their cupboards are empty, and they cannot put food on the table for themselves and their families. So there's a big issue there. There's a disconnect. Hey. And we all need to care about it because it matters to all of us. Um, and, uh, you know, there's enough food out there. We just need to work out how everybody can access it. And, Sarah, where do you, where do you think the, the breakdown in that chain is? Because the sentence is, we make enough, we're able to feed everybody. Where do you think... Is it at home? Is it with the individual? Is so, that where the chain so is So, yes, out? if you look at... We've done research into what I call the culprits. Yes. Um, and it is the full length of the food chain. Um, but the single biggest area where food is wasted here in Australia, and this is different in, in other countries, but here in Australia, is in the home. Mm. So 34% of all food waste originates in the home. Mm. Um, the second area is in production. So on farm. Um, and that's called food loss, and it's food that just simply never makes it to the market um, and uh, never makes it uh, into the supermarkets and so on. And in the case of fruit and vegetables, for instance, 50% of all that's produced by farmers never makes it to sale. So um, it's right along the food chain, um, and everybody has a role to play. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's such a worrying it's such a worrying part of the conversation and i think it's it's an opportunity though but an i opportunity. mean if we if yeah if we look at it that if we could capture all that food and get it into people's tummies we would solve the problem and and also address the environmental impacts and it's topically sydney and new south wales has has started water restrictions with fines which are in, in effect as of today and we haven't had that in 10 years. Mm. It's been 10 years. The dam is at 53%. Mm. So they've gone to level one earlier than they generally would. Mm. How, how do you see the water piece of the well, that, conversation? Well, that's, that's a huge aspect yes. of it because obviously it takes water to produce food. Mm. And so if food doesn't go to its ultimate purpose, which I believe is, uh, is providing nutrition to people, um, then all the resources that went into producing that food mm. have been for naught. Mm. They've gone to waste. Um, and, you know, that's the reason why food needs to, to reach its destination, which is someone's plate, someone's stomach. Yeah. I just got a message off two of my growers on my phone saying that the prices are going to be going up now because of the water restrictions. Water restrictions, and, yeah. 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 It's an immediate effect. Well, I yeah. think that, I think in, in light of what you just said, I think that we are genuinely looking at a situation, even in this country of abundance, where food may have restrictions mm. and fines if we're not careful. So today is a very important mm. conversation. Um, Josh, you spoke at the head of this about how through the tough winter and staffing, yeah. you discovered new ways to go from, I guess, mouth to fin with yeah. fish. How do you deal with that the the circular economy and food yeah. waste in the, in hospitality. Yeah, I mean, I, <coughs> when I when we decided to open St Peter just before, I kind of told everybody what we were doing and how we we're going to do it, and they all, well, not they, but like a, a couple of people. It was quite fascinating to receive a few emails saying I was an idiot for opening a fish restaurant in 2018 or 2016, and uh, just because of the the amount of labour that needs to go into it and the extreme costs that fish come in at and the very short shelf life that a fish has. And so part of that was really in the beginning focusing on how we can minimise our waste, but then how we could create longevity from a fish. Uh, so, I mean, I'm uh, not sure if anybody of you looked at any of the things that we've done, but in terms of dry ageing a fish, and prolonging the shelf life of a fish was really important that the three days conventionally seen as being all you can achieve from a fish now is three to four weeks um, through very correct handling. Um, and so we've developed uh, fridges at both St. Peter and Fish Butchery, which allow us to store fish without the use of preservatives or salt for extremely long period of time. And through that time, we've actually noticed that, you know, flavours develop and they get better. Um, there'll be certain moments where a fish will taste significantly better than it did on day one. And, uh, uh, sorry, going back to the point, sorry. No, that, uh, it's so no, fascinating. I, just, yeah. I actually want to ask you before I do go back to the point, yeah. what was one of the most amazing things that you, you when you set out in these mm. mad experiments to turn, you know, fish into yeah. osso buco, <laughs> yeah. what was one that actually just made you go, wow? 
I think the iChip was kind of strange because everybody was so confronted. There's so much confrontation with a fish fillet, let alone uh, organs of a fish for a lot of people. So uh, fish eyes was always that one that the gross uncle would reach over the table and dig the fork into and eat it just to freak <laughs> you out. Um, and, you know, the goofiness and chalkiness and all the horrible things about an eye were really like my, how do I make this really yummy? Um, so I took a prawn cracker. Um, idea and substituted out what would be prawn and substituted the eye in and to watch a, an eyeball transform into this big almost like pork cracker uh, was quite quite uh, extraordinary. Cool. Yeah it was very cool. <laughs> yeah very Instagrammable. Absolutely. <laughs> so the the, uh, the train of thought ahead of yeah, that sorry. was how do you handle yeah. waste and food waste in your restaurant yeah. and what would you like to see hospitality do yeah. to improve on? Well, I suppose that. it's purchasing exactly what you need. Um, like, I mean, we all know how expensive fish is uh, as a commodity, but also realising that mm, there's so much more to a fish than just the fillet. It's like, I think we all know that beef fillet is a primary cut on a cow and, you know, it comes at an extreme expense, yet the silver sides and the hanger steaks and, you know, all those can be equally as delicious, but just requires a little bit more... Um, deft thinking when it comes to methods and there's so much method out there for meat cookery but very little about fish so I think in recent times I've started noticing a lot of people like restaurateurs and things opening the doors of their kitchen to try to elaborate on their methods like master classes and uh, trying to get as much as they can up on Instagram and I think that's helping uh, educate uh, consumers on how to handle their food better. So to bring desirability to waste. Um, and I know that I do masterclasses at the butchery over Tuesday, and I try to take the idea of, you know, little Italian village, and we were even discussing this earlier in Serbia, taking a whole pig uh, and slaughtering it and using, you know, the offal first, you know, curing down the legs and producing ham for next year and having a bit of a matrix worked out in terms of what needs to get used first and then how can we preserve it and it's going back centuries to, to think, you know, how do we maximise our uh, dollar, I suppose, now we've got to think about as well. If I buy a fish for $500 or $400 and somebody tells me that I'm only going to yield $200 from it or $150, that's poor business. Um, and then, as well as that, poor ethics. So we really make a concerted effort that I tell the front of house and back of house team at the restaurant that we've spent this much money on it. That particular little liver that's sitting in there comes in at a cost of $6. And we're not looking at a $6 cost. We're looking at a mark that up by four for a restaurant price, and that's a $24 liver. So then why... <laughs> why are we throwing that in the bin? Like, I'm not going to cut into a fish and serve all of, you know, a fish that doesn't look great because I've got a reputation to uphold and if you're going to come to St. Peter, you want to have that awful experience and I give you something that's inferior for the sake of somebody wanting to have that experience, then, you know, you, you'll have to come back again. Uh, I've got to a point at the restaurant where everybody wants to have the eye chip or everybody wants to have the grilled hearts or the spleen that we we're throwing do. away the fillets. And yeah. we're throwing away the fillets. It's kind of, yeah, yeah like if the, if the offal is damaged, I won't serve it. But it's funny now, as soon as that goes on the menu, that's the first to sell. Mm. And that's exciting for us. Um, 
So, yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thanks. It's a really yes, but to talk about other restaurants, it's just to really invest their thinking more in the product, less in the aesthetic. Like, you know, gone are the days where you can cut a cube out of the middle of a coral trout and think it's wonderful to serve 13 textures of carrot with it, then think about the actual coral trout and the 13 things that you can do with that. So, yes. yeah. Um, Amanda, I might just uh, jump to you and say, what can we do within our homes and in our communities, or what are we doing uh, to minimise food waste and also the impact that that then has on the environment? Um, well, there's loads we can do um, at home. And as Tara said, I mean, it's the households that um, are generating the most food waste that goes to landfill, which is the bit that um, where I'm in, in the, the waste end. Um, so there's loads of things that we can do, but we've done a lot of research for Love Food, Hate Waste, and the more we look into it, we've done tracking surveys as well like since 2009. It's the longest tracking survey in the world around attitudes to food waste. And consistently, everybody hates food waste, Nobody wants to do it, but we do do it. And the more we look into it, the more we realise how complicated it is. It's actually not easy. Mm. Um, you know, and it's... it's um, we, last year, we had Behaviour Works, which is a um, behavioural science unit at Monash University looking into um, food waste programmes around the world. And the point was, as well, is food waste in itself is not a behaviour. It's the result of multiple behaviours. Mm -hmm. And in order to combat that, then you also need multiple behaviours to do it. So things like um, shopping to a list, buying only what you need, the principles are the same, actually, whether you're in business or at home, mm. um, but also knowing what you're going to do with it. And then if something changes, your plans aren't there, you're going out, then what do you do with it? And actually thinking, I'm going to put that in the freezer now. And as Matt Preston said last year, um, also have a, a pen and a piece of paper next to do it or a sticky note so that you can put on the thing what's in the freezer. So there's a whole load of behaviours there that mean that you don't waste that Meet and you don't realise by Friday it's gone off and it's past its use-by date. So um, it is actually really quite complicated, but it's quite... Once you get into it, it's actually quite um, fun and challenging, you know. There's a huge satisfaction in using up the last bits of food in your fridge before you go shopping or writing your list of what you've actually got in there. If you like cooking, it's actually quite an interesting way of um, enjoying the food that you have and making the most of what you've got. Right. Amanda, can I just jump in? Um, one of the things that's interesting out of the research is that uh, how people define waste. Mm. So you talk to a householder and a lot of them believe that whatever's left on the plate after they've eaten, if they served up too much or what have you, that's not waste. No. So that's the question we asked in the last tracking survey, which was 2017. So we said, what you know, we're trying to define avoidable and unavoidable. Um, and or to try and get what people's understanding was, and that was the question. So 44% of people thought plate waste was unavoidable. Simply, you couldn't have put less on the plate, or you couldn't have actually eaten it up, or, you know, it was like it was completely unavoidable. 14% people thought it wasn't waste at all, and 42% thought it was avoidable. So in that, what we realised was um, most of the time when we've been asking people what they thought about food waste is actually really, really depended on their attitude to mm. it. So we needed to do an awful lot more research in understanding those differences. Um, so, yeah, it's um, people, people don't um, really un sort of think that through or sort of understand it. We've got some quite interesting behavioural research as well around the curbside bin. So we've been funding FOGO services, putting food in your green lid bin, and um, 
regional New South Wales has been absolutely brilliant in taking this up, and they've so many. There's 42 councils now that you can just put your all food, all your scraps, all your bones, everything into your green bin, and it's taken to composting and. And Sydney, Penrith is the only council at the moment that does it. City of Sydney have just got some funding to do 100 or 75,000 units for food only. So it's happening. Mm. But anyway, with the curbside, the data shows that um, 55% of the bins, that, or I think it's is it, or f- only 55% of the bins have actually got food in them. And 87% of the bins have got no contamination. So it means few people are using these services absolutely brilliantly, but some people aren't. And we don't know why. Like, and contamination and, is things that aren't recyclable. Yeah, so plastic bags or, you know, cutlery or something. Mm-hmm. You know, other things. So 87% of bins are perfectly fine and people are using it really, really well. So there's a sort of... It's interesting. So what we're wanting to do next year is actually to deep dive into those households and find out more about what's happening, more about actually why people aren't using it. Um, and there's a bit of a confusion as well, too, around home composting, you know, that you could only yes. compost vegetable scraps, rightly, if you're going to have a nice, lovely um, compost bin in your garden. But with the FOGO service, you can put everything in it and it'll all be processed properly. Is, is it an education piece? I mean, would you, would you like to see this end up in curriculum and be starting to be taught at schools do you is 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 it just is it actually an education piece that's missing in this definitely and there are different ways and there are some councils in fact there's linda's here in the audience who does a great job educating their community up in the northeast waste area um yeah education is really critical but it's also it's actually a very new thing and it's not a social norm yet and I think that's the other thing once we become increasingly as a community actively wanting to do something about this or realizing what happens or realizing what happens when you put the food in the bin it's going to get composted and it's going to go back on farm and it's going to help your food grow it's actually that whole awareness of, of what of that whole process which going to your thing around the circular economy and where food um, fits into that it's actually in the concept of a circular economy, and we've been looking at that at the EPA as across the all waste and how we can better manage that and reduce it. But f- if you think about it with food, it, it could not be more conducive to be um, integrated into a sort of circular world in its very self, you know, like it's sort of like it, 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 the food is grown from the ground, you know, you can, mm. it, it breaks itself down into a product that helps the soils. Um, it's naturally conducive to being um, you know used within a circular economy and and within that is the very important bit which is you know that the earlier end is making the most of it so once it's grown Mm. first of all absolutely make the most of it make the most of every bit of the fish make the most of you know make sure you eat it up and then afterwards it has you know unavoidable stuff has the potential to then go back and improve soil health Mm. and I get Go on. Oh, I was no, just, I was sorry. But I was just going to say, I think there's a piece before that, and I think the piece before that is the, the why. Mm. So when people have a paradigm shift about the value of food and the value of ensuring that we make the most of every bit of food we produce, then uh, people are open and they seek out the, the, the knowledge and the education that they need. But I think we need that why piece. And if you think about um, previous generations, I mean, I remember when I grew up, 
that, you know, I was always told, eat everything on your plate because there's starving Biafrans. I think it was Biafrans at the time when I was young. I'm, oh, I'm, aging, I'm dating myself now, but... No, but um, it, and they were post... There were depression and they, they, there was a value because of circumstance. Yeah, so... And, of course, I would joke that, OK, well, I'll take my peas and post them off to the Biafrans. They can have them. But um, instilled in us through that by our parents was the, the value of food. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's something that has been lost um, in the rush for uh, novelty and convenience. Um, we undervalue our food and the, and the, the cost of the food, um, and therefore waste does not seem a big issue for us. So I think if people understand the why, what's going on behind uh, uh, that waste, then... Uh, there'll be a, a shift in people's mindsets and, and then the education and what to do about it can kick in. And I think consistency. I think people can, can say, yes, I'm going to make a huge effort and change the way we are and we're going to cook differently. But like any major societal shift, there has to be consistency in keeping that going. And then that you know, becomes the tidal wave for change. Ivana, you feed so many people nationally you have a big footprint when it comes to food and potential food waste. What are you doing to, to minimise that and also the impact on the environment? Yeah, it's interesting um, because I'm sure many of you have eaten at IKEA. You've come to a store, you've had the meatballs, and then you are asked to take your tray back and put it on the little trolley kind of conveyor belt system. But what happens after that is the interesting part when it comes to food waste, because we sort every, all our post-consumer waste, all our pre-consumer waste, all our organic food waste is all sorted. And 100% uh, we have zero-to-waste landfill. So all of our organic matter is sorted and repurposed into biogas or fertilizer pellets as well. So we are trying to contribute and grow that from a food waste perspective. Mm. Also the education piece within our co-workers because also they see it in their workplace, they take it home with them as well. And I think, Sarah, to your point about the dilution of message, Josh and I had a discussion when I'm, I'm originally from Serbia and when I was eight, I remember my mother um, killing a chicken, putting it in a bucket of hot water and letting the feathers loosen up so that we could pluck it as a child, I understood and valued that food because I understood where it came from. I knew how we fed it and how we grow it. And I think also with IKEA, we try and secure that kind of transparent supply chain in a very big way um, about where the food's coming from, how is it sourced. But what we don't talk about as well when it comes to food waste is the packaging. You will go to a supermarket and as much as we all want to be healthy, you'll buy three punnets of blueberries for $9-$10. You'll eat the blueberries, and maybe 80% of them are okay, 20% could be, have a bit of mould on them, or maybe you'll see the skin on the outside and not want to eat it. And I think that's the important path that we miss when we discuss food waste, is the packaging aspect of it. Mm. Um, and how can we look at different ways of packaging in order to secure a safe supply chain as well? So it's challenging. Um, manufacturers to look at more plant-based packaging, which is what we're doing internally at IKEA within the next 10 years, but predominantly more here in Australia, in the next 12 months, we would have, all of our packaging would have been compostable, so from a plant-based product, so using polylictic acid, which is made from cornstarch, 
so that way it is renewable. So we need to start to look at as well when it comes to food waste, what does the packaging look like? What does it look like before and afterwards as well? Mm. So I think that's why we don't talk about that aspect of it because it does, it hits our curb waste mm. and we recognise that as a business or as IKEA, but it's also how can we start to educate and having forums like this where we discuss these sort of topics, I think is a great way to start mm. to filter those conversations. Well, I think, I mean, in the separate side of the business, which is the design and the furniture side of the business, yep. you have got that returnable, anything that, you, anything that you buy, you can take back and it will be remade and repurposed to the earth. So I guess that is indeed what you're doing now with food, which is, is very commendable. Yep. As, as Our home furnishing range, 62% is uh, from a renewable resource. And we actually have the gentleman that started our take back uh, scheme, David, just there in the audience. He started that here nationally in Australia, which will roll out um, across the country as well. So that's something that we've really been proud to say that we, you can bring your old IKEA furniture back um, and we would pay you a, a sum of money and then you can go and um, you know, use that credit or, or money or funds, whatever else, to go and shop again in a more sustainable sourced designed product mm. within um, Ikea so it's, yeah no, it's it is so we're applying the same principles in from furniture into our food into business food as well. incredibly can I, oh. yes no go ahead can I toss in a pet issue you can toss which in is anything. the 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 best before used by yes which I think is something that needs to be reformed Amanda you'll back me up on this um the uh that's a big issue. Um, it's one that we wrestle with every day at Food Bank, of course, because often we're dealing with food at the end of its life. And so we need to be very careful about uh, uh, the age of that food and the, the, the food safety aspects. But I think the public have become way too conservative and they don't understand. Um, Best before is a is a marketing term. It's all about stock turn within the supermarket, and it's it's uh, uh, ensuring that the food is eaten at its optimal state. Mm. But it's not unsafe to eat after best before by any stretch. I mean, we all know that you can take a can, bury it, dig it up a hundred years later, and it would still be edible, right? Um, but the law, the law stipulates that uh, any food, however long its life, should have a maximum of two years. I, I think that that, I mean, even at, even at home, you know, my husband teaches our kids to smell. Yes. He said, yes. he'll always say, smell the well, yogurt, I mean, best... smell the milk, smell this, like learn how to smell the meat. Even, even if you go and you buy it from a butcher, smell it before you cook and it. And that, that's, like, that's if you're... understanding. Yeah what food is in physical sense, not the date or whatever it tells you. I mean, best before, the, you know. ignore it. Yeah. Okay, it's, 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 it really doesn't... <laughs> you heard it here first. It doesn't tell you anything, <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything of any import, okay? Use by, pay attention, because use by is all about when the manufacturer believes that food is safe to eat. But even use bys are conservative, and if you... Um, uh, you know, when you shop, if you ensure that the chilled food is, is taken home quickly and put in a fridge, which is set at the right temperature, then food can go way past use-by date as well. Mm. And that's exactly where your eyes and your nose come into play. Mm. And, you know, use-by is not a switch. Which the I food think doesn't be... just click off. No, and I think that. that should be taught in science. Mm. I think that that should be part of 
curriculum, even for you know young young kids. So is it? Environmental regulator. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we do recommend that people do abide by the use by. But the, the other day, I, I I needed to thicken some gravy, so I found some cornflour at the back of the cupboard, and I, I gave it. I, I sniffed it, and I did, gave it a go, and everything, and it was all right. But I looked at it afterwards, and it said used by November 2015. Yes. And I thought, mm, but it was maybe that will be the last meal that that one gives me. So <laughs> it was probably actually would have been fine for longer even. But I was just like, well, just in case, been at the back of the cupboard. I've got cockroaches. You know. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm going to actually just stay in this lane, right? Because it's your lane. Um, <laughs> you also have some really interesting ideas around consumer sort of fickleness and our need for convenience and promotions and yes. novelty I mean, that, and, and yes. how that is impacting on food wastage. Well, it, it absolutely. Um, I, I've been asked many times who's responsible for food waste. Is it the consumers or is it the, the food industry? Mm. Um, and I've, I, to be honest, I fall on the side of consumers because industry responds to demands. The great thing about industry is their the single motivation is is making money and they will do whatever makes money and that's the signal that the consumer provides to them. But um, as consumers, uh, our preferences and our desires have driven this waste in the system because um, what we want is we want novelty. Mm-hmm. So we like new launches, new flavours, new brands. Mm-hmm. Not all of them work. Not all of them are taken up or desired, and therefore there's a lot of waste. Food bank benefits from that. I mean, we, we had... I can't tell you how much frozen cereal, and I don't mean cereal in the fridge, but the Disney movie Frozen. Um, <laughs> how much frozen cereal we had in our warehouse because... In spite of the popularity of the movie, no one wanted the breakfast cereal. Um, and, and can I tell you, the number of weirdly flavoured Tim Tams we have in the food I bank know. warehouse is amazing. Yes. It's absolutely amazing. But that is the food industry uh, responding to consumers' desire for novelty and for newness new. and difference. And then they want convenience. Um, and all of these things unfortunately, lead to uh, inefficiencies in the food supply chain. It's the promotion as well. It's the, oh, I can get six packets yes. for or no, nine, 99 cents. And the big one is a competition or a special deal on the packet which lasts for a month. Mm-hmm. And they didn't sell all the packets in that month, but now the competition's closed, so they can't sell that, that, that product anymore. Wow. You know, there's all sorts of reasons, and it's, it's, they're all good reasons that we as consumers have kind of told the industry we want. Mm. Um, and when it comes to the, getting back to my pet subject used by Best Before, um, <laughs> I spent years in the dairy industry and, and um, you go to the supermarket and there's a wonderful fridge arrangement with slopey shelves so that the, the milk drops to the front as someone takes one out, the milk drops to the front. And the, the, the packers actually are in the cool room at the back and they pack from the back. And that means that in the front, the milk is uh, the milk with the most, you know, the, the oldest stock that still has plenty of date code on it, you know, suitable for you to take home. 
I can't tell you how many times you watch people go to the fridge and they reach over to the back and they get the milk at the back that has the extra few days, mm. right? Because, you know, they're sure they're going to take three weeks to drink this <laughs> litre of milk. And that means that all the product in the front has to be removed from the shelves at the end of the day and is waste. Mm. And so there's a lot of consumer behaviour which is, is contributing to this wastage, both in terms of their preferences and in terms of their actions. I am frightened and I'm going to go and write a list of all the things I need to change. It's so true and every single one of us is guilty of one of them, all of them, some of them. And it does come with the individual and then shift, shift will happen. Mm. I am going to shift our conversation uh, to, to plant-based food. And uh, Josh, I'd love you to, to, to lead this discussion. Uh, I know you're passionate about this, even though seafood yeah. is your world. <coughs> um, what is the future of, of plant-based food? Well, yeah, uh, I mean, plant, plants are so important. And I mean, we, we base 50% of our uh, composition of our plates at the restaurant on, on vegetables. And I think there's so much to be said about bringing desirability, like I said, to you know, the waste of a fish, but also to plants. And like the fish, uh, sorry, the veggie balls that you guys are doing at Ikea, it's kind of, it brings immediacy to a product to, to get all the goodness out of, uh, out of something very quickly. Um, and if it's followed with a recipe card that allows you to do that, or, you know, a very simple method of cookery, then it'll wind up on your plate very quickly. It's, um, I think, giving, giving vegetables uh, a little bit more, like giving it some imagination beyond just, you know, the grilled eggplant on polenta, uh, vegetarian stacks and things like that and grilled mushrooms with blue cheese sauce. It's, um, you know, to take some of the thinking about what I do with fish and apply them to vegetables. People don't think that they can have a good uh, plant-based experience at St. Peter because we promote fish, obviously. Um, but to come in and say that you're a vegetarian or a vegan or, um, you know, you didn't, didn't want fish, um, then you can have a pretty extraordinary meal with us because we carry so many vegetables on our menu. Um, and there just needs to be a little bit more creativity applied to, to vegetables. Um, we work with a number of different organic growers at the restaurant. Um, they're based, you know, Blue Mountain, Southern Highlands. And it's amazing to go and visit them and to learn intimately about their processes and how, how they work. And I bring the kitchen with me uh, when I can. And just to shed a light on the fact that if it is a frost or, you know, it's really hot, then we won't be seeing, you know, those exact vegetables that we got last year or last month. So there needs to be some diversity in our thinking uh, when it comes to uh, other options outside the norm. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's more just bringing some imagination to plants, like to move forward with them, because they can become very, like everybody wants to eat a little bit um, more plant focused rather than relying on the heavy proteins, uh, meats and fishes. But if they don't come with any kind of luster, like if they don't come with, you know, <clears throat> it's uh, a little less impressive or people don't see the value in, in, in what they're spending. No, so, yeah. absolutely. And Ivana, maybe you can talk to it on a, on a larger scale and actually feeding mm -hmm. vegans and, and vegetarians and using plant-based protein as a substitute 
for meat and Yeah, well, we started that, as Josh mentioned, with the veggie balls, and now we're moving to um, finding an alternative to meat protein as well, mm. so developing another ball. Um, we will have a new salmon and cod balls, which actually utilises the parts of the fish that necessarily don't go in a fillet. Um, but when it comes to plant-based, uh, in the next six months, we'll be launching a new veggie dog, um, which is 100% plant-based alongside our regular veggie dog. But you're right about the... It has to be, like, shiny and the value. Yeah. And um, people want to know uh, what is happening in that area. For us, we're also going to be doing a plant-based soft-serve ice cream, uh, which is coming as well in the next six to eight months um, that we'll be launching. So we're just perfecting the recipes. But Yum. It is, yeah, it is pretty cool. Um, I have... I did... Uh, probably ate way too much um, during the trial period and testing phase. But it is, it's, it's the demand. Our consumers and our, and our customers are demanding more plant-based uh, meal options on the plate. And yeah. if, I think there was an EAT forum in uh, Stockholm in February mm. where the Lancet Journal published a report stating that future meals in the next 10 years, we need to look at you know, 20% meat on the plate and 80% plant yeah. um, vegetables I, on the plate. Yeah, so. I was going to say, like, with the way that I think about fish and how some chefs think about meat, it's not like, you know, if you think about the carrot, it's not just the carrot that you're thinking of, it's the, it's the you know, the tops, what can I achieve with that or what, you know, does something seed or does something pollinate or is there a flower, is there leaves? Like, there's so many aspects to a plant beyond, I suppose, the core of what, you know, is identifiable. And I, I think people like the Rene Redzepis of the world and the Dan Barbers that are exploring the potential of a vegetable outside of convention are really, especially in a world of social media, can really migrate that knowledge through to my phone and, you know, chefs around me. And, and we can kind of think, okay, well, I didn't think I could do that with an eggplant um, and, and maybe I could try that. So um, there's... Yeah, there's some unique ways of applying new thinking to, to vegetables in line with what I do with, with fish and then what butchers do to meat. So It's such a, it's such a huge com conversation, plants, I think. Um, um, just on that as well, too, um, it, at home, using all the everything, and the Love Food Hate Waste New Zealand did a Be a Stalker campaign with broccoli stalks. <laughs> and you honestly can't watch that without chopping up your broccoli stalks and adding them to your meal every time. It's really good. And there's so many things we can do at home. And not peeling. That was another yeah. um, discussion, actually. It's, that's a really hard one. Um, carrot peels, avoidable or unavoidable. Discuss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, of I, course, they are unavoidable. I might just, um, Amanda, just ask you, what future projects have you got as the EPA working on at the moment that you can talk about that are really, and, and Sarah, you could, and from Food Bank's perspective, what are your future projects that are really exciting in this space? Yeah, so we've, um, we're looking to ramp up Love Food Hate Waste with some campaigns because we've just finished uh, redoing the website and... Um, running the, those sorts of campaigns and, and boosting that sort of engagement, which is really exciting. We finished the rebrand of it, so that's good. Um, we've got a, a the Love Food Communities project, which is um, f up to five communities in New South Wales sort of delving deeply into food waste. Mm -hmm. It's um, grant-funded up to $250,000 over two years, so that's actually going to be exploring a whole range of different things that, that um, we can do with local government in those communities and testing, working 
in partnership with things like the retailers. I'm hoping to do things like projects that look at floor plans and their uh, like store layouts and you know the, and customer responses to um, how that drives food waste behaviours, and also supporting food donations through that. But I haven't spoken to Sarah about this yet, and I would like to as well too. We're also looking because we've got two more years of funding and then we're hoping to go beyond that with our Waste Less Recycle More, but some innovation around food donation too. Like We're funding the vans and the fridges and the freezers and we've been funding education, but also things like um, community supermarkets or community mm. fridges or, or apps that help homeless people access food from restaurants at the end of the evening, you know, mm. and do some work around those areas as well too. So And... Getting Sydney to recycle its food waste—that'd be good. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, uh, the food rescue uh, sector, we're diving into the brave new world of apps. So we should talk about that. Yes. Um, and uh, developing what I would kind of call the the, the Tinder of food rescue. <laughs> um, so we at Food Bank are actually working with a, a Y Waste, which is an app that actually provides discounted food uh, from restaurants and food service at the end of the day to the public. But what we're doing is uh, providing uh, a mechanism where um, people in need can access those meals for free. Wow. Um, and that means, you know, at, they have the dignity of being able to go to a takeaway outlet um, and pick up a meal for themselves and their families. In a dignified manner. In a dignified manner, that's yeah. right. And uh, uh, because they've been uh, identified uh, by a charity as someone in need and they're given a special code so that they can get that meal for and free. There should never, ever be any shame around food. So no, I that's think right. I that that's an incredible, an incredible initiative, really mm. amazing. One of the um, many amazing things Food Bank do. Now... It's your turn. Audience, you have been incredibly attentive. Thank you so much. And this hour has flown. Um, we do have time for some questions. There are people, very handy people with microphones. So if you have a question for anyone, please raise your hand. You have fabulous hair. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we've discussed and discovered that one of the key actions to creating a circular economy for food is the food that's unavoidable wastage and how you deal with that. And it's great to see that IKEA doesn't waste any food, um, but only 5% of commercial industrial operators actually recycle their food in Australia. So I was wondering, Josh, yes. you as a small business owner that creates small amount of mm -hmm. food waste in comparison to, say, an IKEA, yeah. What would drive you to recycle your food and other operators in small operators in hospitality or I think I think it spurs on creativity. I think in a world that seems like in a culinary world that seems to have celebrated everything and there's been a recipe for everything and uh, you know grand French cuisine leads into very uh, like a hybrid Spanish cuisine, which fuels then Nordic cuisine, which now lands us here where we are now, there seems to be such a momentum spurred on by waste and, and the thoughts behind what we can produce uh, with all the secondaries. So I think, uh, honestly speaking, like for the chefs in Sydney and the chefs in Australia, 
um, the birth of new thinking and new uh, preparations and recipes can be born out of all the things that we've been throwing in the bin. And I know there's a great number of my friends uh, in the industry, they're picking apart their methods and they're literally looking at what they're you know, throwing in the bin. And if, if what's going in the bin can be made into something very desirable, um, I mean, I, I continue to look at a fish. It's only in the last 12 months that I worked out that I could make caramel out of uh, fish fat. And so we've made a butter caramel. Instead of using butter, we use the, the fish fat from a Murray cod, and the Murray cod coming from a sustainable farm and, uh, and a native Australian fish. And so there's a few stories within that um, that, that fuel enthusiasm and excitement around something that's considered very new. So there's a whole <laughs> realm of opportunity that lies in waste, and I think that will be the, the biggest driver to encourage and spur on, uh, I think, a new generation. So, yeah. Thank you. Can good I question. add something there? Very good question. Um, yeah, and we've just recently, um, we've been, look, we've got, we have a program for cafes and restaurants called Your Business is Food, which is about helping them to avoid food waste. And um, we've been rolling it out with grants, and the take-up's been really slow. Um, it's, it, it's because these are, it's busy, you know, it's just not, it's not yeah. a critical part of the cafe and restaurants um, work, and it's just, uh, you know, it's seen as something that's quite difficult. But one of the things that's come through is that they're actually really interested in collections, and saw separated collections. So we're, at, we're thinking now that maybe the better way is to approach them by supporting more food collections, mm. which we do through our funding, which is open at the moment till the 27th of June, business collections. Um, but supporting them that way and then working on avoidance afterwards, that it's in fact actually once they start to have their food waste collected and they start to look at the volumes of that and they start to see the cost benefits in having that taken away from the yeah. main bin. So it's actually an area that we think that we probably let's work on that side and then we can really concentrate on the avoidance. Because, yeah, like, I mean, as romantic as it sounds, what I said earlier about, um, you know, the wage cost being so high, food costs low, everything's hard and whatever, and then awards come and everybody thinks it's great. Like, for that three months of having six chefs servicing, you know, 35 people at best with another four floor staff, like losing a lot of money and Oxford Street, right? And on Oxford Street, yeah. It's just I don't know. It's yeah. uh, uh, it it tells a good story now, but in the moment it was like my accountant was ready to cut <laughs> cut me apart. Like it was, you know, you need to do something. You got to get rid of these people, or you got to, you know, how are you going to work it out? And I said, literally, just cool your jets, and <laughs> we'll hopefully, you know, something good will happen at the end of the year, and 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 then it kind of went from there. But. Yeah, it's very, and, uh, very hard to make. And you've got a book out in September as well, haven't you? Oh, a little segue there. You go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the book, the book will come out uh, in September, the whole fish cookbook. So it'll be a story more about um, food waste and how to be a little bit more creative and diverse in our thinking and, and diversifying the fish on your table, not just in Australia, but globally speaking as well. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we have another question here. Hello, um, my name is Nell. I work at Planet Arc. Um, I have a question, um, probably for Sarah most. Um, the the obsession that people have now, and I guess the the lack of um, uh, connection that we have with food, because we can go in a Coles and Woolies and we have everything that we want. Um, what impact do you think that um, people wanting things out of season? Um, what impact do you think that that has on food waste? Um, 
guess that's one part of the question. And the other part of the question is, um, what is the importance? There's a lot of contention around um, plastic packaging. Um, and what impact do you think that plastic packaging has and how important is that conversation to, to properly package food that's going to supermarket in order to be able to get that onto the table and you know, increase mm. that shelf life? Mm. I, this, the, the seasonality of food and, and the fact that we can get avocados all year round and so on, mm. um, I don't see that has a big impact on waste. Um, it certainly has an impact on people's perception about the value of food mm. because if you can get something all the time, you perceive it of less value, I believe. Um, I think it's the fact that something's special, it's, it's summer, so it's mango time yeah, or, or, you know, yeah. really puts that joy and that, that, that value and specialness back into food. Mm. Um, I, I, I do think with regard to the plastic packaging that, you know, a lot needs to be done there. And I'm involved, uh, the whole industry is involved in a, a cooperative research uh, centre at the moment. So the, the, uh, federal government announced a couple of years ago a, a objective to reduce food waste by half um, and one of the initiatives is to commit to research so there's a lot of money has been is being put into research and packaging is one of the most exciting areas so the packaging industry is right there boy they again they are responding to consumer signals mm. and you know 20 years ago, it was all about food integrity and food safety. And that, that prompted them to put more packaging around the food to make sure that it was safe. And, you know, um, now they understand that there's a new imperative, and that is, you know, the right kind of packaging and less packaging. Food safety needs to be maintained, but there's all sorts of new things. So there's some exciting stuff that will be coming through in terms of packaging the industry uh, is very responsive to and market signals. I think even a year ago when we had this discussion, we weren't reusable plastic bags at supermarkets. Yeah. No, so, that's come in since. I mean, that has come in in the last year and it's almost, almost, I think, part of our vernacular now. Mm. Nine times out of 10, I'm remembering to take them into the store. So change, I think what you said about packaging is Yep. Really, really excellent, and I think there's going to be more and more happening. Yeah, there's that, there's in great area. innovation. You know, packaging that, um, you know, will basically take over the role of the use by date. So the packaging <laughs> will actually change colour when the food goes off and things like that, so that you will actually know for sure. Mm. And um, sorry, yes, yeah, like uh, with the cucumber wrapped in plastic which is always a nightmare and the packaging industry it's like well it lasts three weeks longer yeah. because of that but I was talking to the um, chair of the Australian Organics Recycling Association the composters and they're trialling um, compostable plastic packaging on cucumbers as well yeah, good. so even that one might soon be able to be composted so. to build on that just qu just quickly to add <laughs> um, I think when it comes to packaging and us as a food retailer, mm. we can challenge our suppliers, their subcontractors, to start to think differently um, by putting in parameters in place when it comes to transparency and also compliance. Mm. Um, so we also have an opportunity and our responsibility is also to start to challenge those people we work with because I'm pretty sure that some of the suppliers I use, potentially Josh yeah. uses, and other people in the industry use as well. So well, this is where IKEA and other large food retailers have the opportunity to challenge 
the people that we work with mm. and make that stand and decision that we will not work unless you, you know, think about packaging and more plant-based packaging and, and how you think about their processes throughout the whole supply chain. Well, case the in value point, chain. styrofoam in the fish industry. Exactly. It's like working exactly. on that. Yeah, so I just think we also have that responsibility to, to challenge. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I think... Oh, many questions. It's not... I don't <laughs> want to play Solomon. There's too many good... I'm, I don't good. know. We haven't had a gentleman. I we'll take the yeah, picture yeah. in the back. <laughs> Mike Ritchie from MRA Consulting. Firstly, congratulations to the restaurant owner minimising food waste. Congratulations uh -huh. to IKEA on being a big generator and diverting it, and to Amanda for the $1.3 million grants that are out right now for organics collection. That's all very good, well done. However, uh, we still send about 95% of our food waste to landfill. It generates 3% of Australia's greenhouse gases. It's great that little companies are doing little things at the margins, but as the lady up the front said, 95% of our food waste still goes to landfill. If we're going to address that, we need big mechanisms, not just volunteerism, uh, good as it is. Uh, Robin Parker, the Minister of Environment, said in 1998 that she would ban organics to landfill by the year 2000. In 2010, there was another state government report that said we should force companies and households to divert their organics by compulsory collection systems. These are the only mechanisms that are going to deliver big reform. And that's what we need if we even care slightly about food waste, mm. about poverty, about food need, and certainly about greenhouse gas abatement. Mm. So I, I implore everybody to think about the big neck mechanisms as well as just the, the innovations at the margins. Mm. And that is a compulsory organics collection system for the economy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you are probably... You, you, I'm sure you're right, but I, I do believe that... that People, power and industry have a big role to play. Um, the sustainable development goals uh, are something I'm very passionate about. And these are the, the United Nations global goals with regard to a better planet. And 12.3 is reducing, reducing uh, food waste. We obviously also uh, have at our heart number two, which is uh, zero hunger. Um, and what we're seeing is that while governments, and particularly the Australian government, isn't really engaging with those sustainable development goals in any meaningful way, just a bit of, you know, tokenism, uh, industry and, and global corporates are. And they are very much driving uh, the agenda in that, in that space. Mm. And I'm actually seeing now where, where the commercial sector um, and, and industry is having more impact on, on the status quo than, than governments are. And there's more and more talk now about the fact that if governments are not going to lead um, in these crucial areas, then, then industry and the public will have to do it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, that is where we have to end today's discussion. Thank you so much for your time and attention and care. Your ticket price today, the full, the full amount of your ticket price will be going directly to Food Bank. So thank, thank you, you thank very you. much for purchasing a ticket and for paying it forward. Please thank Sarah Pennell, Josh Nyland, Amanda Kane, who is the Emma Thompson of the 
from the EPA and Ivana Frost. You've been fantastic. Thank you so much.